Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on Believe, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I am your host, Steve Berkowitz, and you may have forgotten all about me in this podcast because I haven't done one in about two months, but I'm back now, and uh, I've got a couple great episodes coming up for you. This episode I recorded about two months ago, so I apologize if it feels a little dated, but I'm telling you, it's going to be great. I've got a terrific interview with a fantastic documentary filmmaker, and so without further ado, here is the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. My guest is C.J. Russo, an award-winning filmmaker whose films have screened at festivals all over the world, including the Sundance Film Festival. Her work has been broadcast on Showtime, PBS, IFC Logo, Stars, and Netflix. Russo most recently dedicated the last four years to producing and directing the cannabis-based documentary Lady Buds, her first feature film, which had its world premiere at Hot Docs 2021. It's now available on Stars and is streaming on Amazon, Apple TV, Vudu, and YouTube. Please welcome CJ Russo. CJ, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's, it's lovely to be here. I watched Lady Buds, which is what I, I really want to talk about. You know, I was fascinated just kind of about uh, the way you introduced these characters, the way you brought these people to life, and the struggles that they had to overcome to find success, to find a life in the cannabis industry. First question really is just, why did you choose this project? Why cannabis? Why now? Well, that's a great question. I believe it was 2016, I live in California and Prop 64 was on the ballot. And so this was going to legalize cannabis uh, in California uh, recreationally. I knew we were going to go through the sea change, you know, and the way people thought about cannabis in the economy and in the media, I started to notice uh, there were a lot of women that were speaking out um, in the industry. And I came across a statistic that said 37% of leadership roles in the cannabis industry were held by women. And I was, I was really surprised because that number is like, wow, unprecedented in any other market. My curiosity kind of led the way as a documentary filmmaker. And I started to go to cannabis networking events, uh, specifically for women and farmers markets. And I started to interview women in the space. And I was just so intrigued that they were so proud of wanting to come out of the shadows from working in the underground market to enter the legal market. And I just realized there was a story here. I didn't know what it was yet because uh, we were just about to vote on Prop 64, but it passed. So the story became, you know, the one year leading up to legalization and the one year following in the lives of these women. And, and I'd have, I'd had interviewed a hundred people. So I was very careful about who I chose to be in the film. And I wanted very, very diverse voices. I chose them for very specific reasons, but everyone in the cannabis world has this origin story that's pretty incredible and they each deserve their own feature film. So I did the best I could, you know, with choosing these six women and interweaving their narratives to kind of give you this, you know, slice of this moment of history where California embraced legalization and then, you know, really wanted to show the, the difficulties and the challenges that, the women were up against to transition from working in the underground or having to battle big money 
and corporations coming into this space that was had always been sort of a counterculture kind of movement. So I was just fascinated by it. I think a lot of people think of California and we, they forget how rough and tumble it was prior to legalization. Can you talk a little bit about that environment that you walked into a year before legalization and what these women were dealing with? Well, you're absolutely right. There's this mythology of the Emerald Triangle and the outlaws uh, who have grown cannabis for decades. And I'll be honest with you, this is a very cautious community that doesn't let outsiders in. So when I was meeting women at these networking events and interviewing them, that led to them saying, hey, um, why don't you come to the farm and check it out? For someone that's had a relationship with weed, you know, most of my life that was like revealing the curtain behind Oz for me, right? To see these magical gardens. So of course, at the beginning of this project that was exciting and I, and I was at a point in my life where I could just do this. So I, th- I threw a lot of camera gear in the car, camping, camping gear and he- headed up to Mendocino and Humboldt for a couple of weeks and, and went on kind of a farm tour. And I, I was embraced by some of these women. They were excited to share their stories, right? So, so to your point, this is a community that was very quiet and hidden for decades. And part, part of this legalization and coming out of the shadows and of the green closet, if you will, people wanted to talk about their stories, right? They had been holding them back for so long. And I think, you know, as a woman, I think I, I, and the way I walk through life, like, I feel like they felt that, you know, I was approachable and, and I had to gain trust, you know, cause I was an outsider going up to Humboldt and Mendocino. And there actually was a couple of moments where I probably shouldn't have had the camera, you know, parked by the side of the highway, filming cars coming on and off, you know, because people were very skittish about filmmakers and people wanting to come in and tell their stories. After uh, gaining their trust and um, being invited to their farms, and then they would say, oh, I would ask them, are there other women you think I could talk to that would want to share their story? It was a lot of word of mouth. And it was a lot of, um, you know, to gain their trust, smoking a lot of weed with them. <laughs> to, so they, they could see I was the real deal because I just wasn't going up there just to sort of take their story and, and leave. I, I actually was really interested in how strong the women were in this community. My focus as a filmmaker is to amplify um, voices of women, people on the margins, I mean, queer filmmaker. And I, I found it just so impressive that these women were putting everything on the line, including their freedom to farm this plant and go legal. One of the things you mentioned in there was this kind of struggle that these women overcame. And that's a big part of the film is the obstacles that these women have to overcome. So even though weed becomes legal, a whole Mm -hmm. host of other issues pop up. Talk about how the the project started to shape up once weed became legal. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea where the story was going to go. And it was a quite an ambitious undertaking. I did this film pretty much on my own. I had a cinematographer, a good friend, Christian Bruno. I reached out to a friend in the industry, Michael Katz, to help produce. So it was a very lean sort of crew, if you will. Really didn't know where the story was going to go. So the so I kind of followed each of the women around a little bit when I knew there were these events that were going to happen that that was going to determine their, their farm being compliant or, you know, some meeting at the 
county commissioner's office or an activist sort of event. Because when California was embracing cannabis legalization, it was a little crazy. The regulations were being formed in real time. Public opinion was still divided. Green rushers came in. People had been in the in the underground for decades were trying to figure out whether or not to go legal. So talk about a dramatic canvas of challenges. It, the cannabis industry has everything and it's touched all types of communities, diverse communities. So when I was doing uh, my research and kind of following these women around, I, I discovered the little known history of the LGBTQ activism in cannabis that sort of laid the foundations for medical marijuana being legalized. Uh, in 1996. And as a, as I said, as a queer filmmaker, I was shocked I didn't know that history. So I kind of knew I wanted there to be some touched upon narrative about that in, in the film. And then I just sort of kind of saw what was happening, uh, what the obstacles were with, with the mega grows coming online, big business. These were small farmers that didn't have millions to be entrepreneurs. So there was just, just this, like, like mixture of wild and dramatic stories that everybody was going through to sort of reach for their dreams. So what I, what I decided to do once I chose the women in the film, I wanted them to represent different voices of the community. And as you know, as a filmmaker, what's really important to do is find the universal themes and the threads of those, of, of their stories so that a broader audience can be interested and relate to them. So for example, Chia Rodriguez is a mom raising two sons on a cannabis farm. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I think that it's important to uh, know how to speak to your kids about cannabis and these taboo subjects. And here they were raising children on a farm uh, that, that I thought could speak to many. And that was really interesting. Again, Felicia, she was the voice of the cannabis history in the queer community and also someone who had been affected by the war on drugs. Sue Taylor, African-American, retired Catholic school principal, 72 when I was filming, wanted to leave a legacy for her family. And, you know, people of color have a very difficult time finding a space at the table in the cannabis industry because of their persecution from the war on drugs. So it, there's just, there was so much going on, but to just keep it simple, we created that framework that was the one year leading up and the one year following. And we didn't know where it was going to go. We saw it was very challenging from the get-go and we were just praying kind of like for some kind of happy ending or something that would show that they could succeed. But as you could see through the film, it's, 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 it was very difficult. So I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to get, but I was kind of just going with an open mind and a curiosity. And I think at the end of the day, I like to think these are portraits of women who are passionately reaching for their dreams. The backdrop happens to be cannabis and it documented a very historic moment. But yeah, I really, really hope that the film is inspiring and empowering for to see all women to succeed in business and the challenges that our current our current country has with capitalism kind of like really uh, challenging our democracy, if you will, and having making it a very difficult situation for for people to reach for their Amer the American dream that that they they rightly deserve. No, I think that's a great point. And that's something that I found very universal is once the 
one acre limit, right? The one acre limit was lifted. Suddenly big business, private equity comes in and seizes this opportunity to get into the cannabis industry, right? Tell me a little bit about how the women dealt with this influx of private equity, big business into this world that they had known as this is ours. This is California. This is, you know, this is a small community. They all entered with this idea of optimism. They were all excited. The, the women that were coming forth from the shadows to give it a try in the legal industry. They were tired of hiding. They saw opportunity, especially the women up north in the Emerald Triangle regions who have this heritage of cannabis that they've been cultivating for decades. Um, they, they knew they had something special, but it started, they, the writing started to be beyond the wall with the reversal of the one acre cap and the money coming into the lobbyists from these big businesses that were tweaking the regulations to favor companies that could ride out the storm with, you know, with a burn rate of, of millions of dollars in the bank to create these mega grows. It started to unfold and become apparent that it was going to be very difficult between the cost of becoming compliant to get your farm up to speed, the cost of the taxes, the cost of marketing and bringing a brand to market. I mean, we're talking about small farmers that have little patches of land off the grid in the hills of Humboldt and Mendocino. So I think that there was optimism. You know, some people didn't even vote to pass Prop 64 because they knew it was kind of the end of an era. But, you know, they had optimism. And, and I saw that them weather a lot of the challenges. And some were able to survive, but many of them have not been able to survive the industry. I mean, my film is a slice of what's happening. It's been really sad. I think what we're seeing now is a regrouping to focus on the small farmer and to show how important craft cannabis, if you will, and knowing where your cannabis comes from, to show how important that is which you know is now going to start to happen in the marketing sphere of cannabis. But it has been pretty much an extinction moment for many of the farmers of Northern California. And, you know, sadly, this impacts the economy in these rural communities um, because people are moving out and people are, don't have the money they used to put into their communities. It's a little bit of a cautionary tale. And I know legalization is now kind of opening up across the country. It's we're having a big moment. So my hope is that, you know, People can look at ladybugs or at least the story of what happened in California and maybe do it differently, you know, because if there ever was an industry that the business world could try to do differently, I think it, it would be cannabis because here you have this symbol of the counterculture movement being embraced by the John Boehners of the world, which is kind of disturbing in a way. But if there was some way to honor that this, this plant has been here for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was misunderstood. It is a symbol of counterculture. If, if there could be a paradigm of business that could do this differently, for example, embrace it as an agricultural you know, entity. I mean, California doesn't even do that. I'm a big fan of the Bud Sisters. <laughs> Me too. Yes. <laughs> so yes, to uh, two of your characters, the Bud Sisters, they they brought such color to the story. 
Can you talk a little bit about the culture and how that painted the picture for the film? Well, I think of the Bud Sisters as, you know, the true OGs of Humboldt. Um, they, they come from that generation where they were farming undercover, you know, in, in the hills. And they were farming cannabis as medicine. And they also, to me, embrace the levity and joy that uh, cannabis uh, can affect, can have on people. And I wanted to, to bring in that humor a little bit in the film because that's part of what can, that's part of the gift of cannabis, right? You know, legalization impacted them the hardest uh, because they didn't have the bank accounts to, to go legal and create compliance with, with the farm. So, so they represent that community of elders that are of, have a very important place in the history of Northern California and cannabis growing. And women, as I've really kind of got into this uh, culture deeper, I realized women really are, have always been the backbone of the community, you know, running the farms, being in the kitchens, running the, the crews, They've had a big role in this in this culture that they haven't given given a, been given a chance to like really have that spotlight. So I wanted to honor you know the Bud Sisters for for you know what they've done over generations, and also make note that that this is having such an impact on the original growers of those communities um, that they are having to to get out of what they used to do for for a living. And it's really hard. It's really hard for them. But but I also do feel like they symbolize the spirit of cannabis and community and joy and levity that that this plant can can bring. You have a very impactful scene in the film. I think it's a city council meeting and it goes fully right. awry. And I'm curious how it hit all these women when it re they realized what it took to make this legal, to make a bit, a bit, a real business out of it. Well, that scene uh, involves Karen Wagner, who's um, been a lifelong serial entrepreneur, had two restaurants. She owned two restaurants in Manhattan and moved her life to um, Humboldt to be with her high school sweetheart, who was a master cannabis grower. So she, she had been living in Humboldt for a long time and saw legalization was on the horizon and was was the most optimistic of anyone in the film. So if there was anyone that I thought would have survived this transition, it would have been Karen. But the, the obstacles that she hit time and time again, and as you pointed out, the simple you know, request of going up against the city council to allow um, the spaces in front of the real estate where the dispensary was gonna be to have parking there, it, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And that was indicative of, if I can reflect now from the process and what I've learned of this holdover mentality of this, like this punitive holdover mentality from people in Humboldt of not wanting to see cannabis legalized or, or giving these operators a very difficult time. Because, you know, I can speculate that some of those men on that panel you know, might view the operators coming into the newly legal industry as former criminals. You know, there is this mentality in Mendocino and Humboldt that, you know, it's divided. These people have been living off the land, not paying taxes, da, 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 what, now they want to have this business. Da, da, da. So I think a lot of what we're seeing in Northern California 
with these obstacles of the, you know, the regulations and these commission meetings that, by the way, continue to occur in all of these counties with cannabis entrepreneurs really working hard to legitimize their businesses, you know, they continue to be up against these walls. And it is really about having a financial base to, to ride out the storm because these regulations do slant towards the big businesses. At every turn, Karen, you know, had difficulties, you know, whether it was like trying to get her product into MedMen, for example. You need a lot of marketing money to have shelf space on a dispensary, in a dispensary. Not everyone, people are fighting for shelf space in dispensaries. And we don't have a lot of dispensaries in this state because that control has been given over to counties versus statewide. So there are many counties in California that still will not have cannabis legalization. So it's a very, um, it's a combination of bureaucracy and financial stability that has really been difficult for, for these women and for many cannabis operators in Northern California across the board. Did you find that the big business uh, growers or you know manufacturers, the private equity folks, are having it easier to get that you know to, to um, grease the wheels, if you will, with the regulators? Well, I mean, yeah, because they can ride out the storm because they have millions in, in their budgets, yeah, and because they can put money in the lobbyist pockets, they're they're really you know un, in, in a lot of ways unfairly like taking over the whole, the whole industry in California. And that's kind of unfortunate because that's happening in so many industries, right? See private equity buying up media properties and real estate. Is it almost for a lot of folks like that you interviewed, is it unfortunate that it is now legal because they're competing with these people who are invading their space that they held for so long? Hmm. I think it's a mixed emotion, mixed emotions on that from the community. I think that a lot of people had wished it remained underground or at least under the medical model that was working really well for 20 years. Everybody who had a place in the, in the space to play, they put back into the community, they paid their taxes. It was a business model that was actually working. So introducing the recreational model in California really kind of opened the, the floodgates of the private money and the big businesses coming in. I think that, sure, yeah, I mean, they um, really were able to survive the medical business model and they, they, their lifestyles, they were able to survive and doing what they did. And um, despite the fact that some of them really did want to just, as they say, come out into the light, be able to live their authentic life out in the open and be a part of um, society and not be looked down upon, if you will. You know, they wanted to do that and they wanted to succeed. I mean, they're entrepreneurs. There's a lot of mixed emotion, but I do believe that most of them probably wish that this floodgate of legalization didn't have to impact them the way it did. I, I do know that everybody in the spirit of keeping the plant accessible and free to everybody, I know that in the spirit of that, most people would like to see it federally de deregulated or, or declassified as a class one scheduled drug and have it legal across the board. 
So I think that, you know, a lot of people come from that place of wanting to be able to get to med- the medicine to the people. It's just unfortunate that the way this capitalist society is structured, because this country was really founded on like everybody could could reach for their own American dream and have a piece of this, you know, and I think there is a way to have conscious capitalism. Cannabis, for some reason, just you know, draws draws everybody in as thinking this is this major green rush. But, you know, who's really winning here is the question. 100%. Four years is a long time to follow these folks and to spend on this project. You're shaking your head. You're putting everything you got into this over the course of four years. How did it, how did you make it work? I'll give you a slice of that. So first of all, I want to correct. It wasn't four years because I had to throw a year on top of that because of the pandemic. Oh, and right. The, 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 film, the film sat on the shelf on a hard drive for a year. Oh, It was done. It was supposed to go to Hot Docs in 2020. Door, door to door, the film took three years. And I was following them for like two years, two and a half it. years. And just to just be transparent about everything. I, I feel like I was really called to make this film. I don't know a better way to, to say it. I was at a point in my life where uh, I was done with corporate America. And it's ironic. You know, I made this film. Now I'm actually saying it out loud. Uh, I had been working for big companies for a lot of my life. And I have two, to, two art degrees. Uh, I, I felt like I've never honored my creative ambitions. So after I left that last company, I sort of just, you know, looked at my life and was trying to figure out how to do this. I started a little company, a, a production company. I was creating a lot of branded content for, for you know, doing these things. And, um, and I was set out to make a feature film. I actually come from the scripted world. I had a feature ready called Cabrillo Highway, which which I'm hoping will be come to fruition in the next couple of years. And I was about to do this um, proof of concept for this, this cycling film. I'm very passionate about cycling. And um, right before we were going to shoot, it went sideways. And I was also still very interested in this whole cannabis thing that was happening. And as you know, as a documentary person, you can just pick up a camera and start filming. So in the spirit of that, I started to go, you know, to these these farmers markets and these cannabis networking events, meeting these women, and I just started to film to see if there was something there. Um, as I'm a storyteller, it doesn't matter if it's scripted or unscripted. I kind of like to follow the story and amplify, you know, you know, women's voices and what's really important to me. So I was just at this t- place in my life where I was kind of giving myself the space to discover and craft and create, if you will, sounds utopic, but like a creative lifestyle. Like so many people in Los Angeles have that I never really gave myself a chance to do. It's scary working freelance. It's scary not knowing how to even create this career. We've talked about that a little bit, you know, there's no blueprint. So all I have always known since I've lived in Los Angeles is to, to, if you want to direct, direct. If you want to make work, make work. If you want to level up, make a feature film, which was the next thing. I've had so many short films play at festivals, hundreds of festivals since, you know, since I, since college. And it was time, it was time to make a feature film. So I, I did invest a lot into this project, um, emotionally, energetically, financially, but I also did apply for grants and I did well with raising money from grants. I did well with crowdsourcing. I, I was able to, to pull together enough funds to keep it going. And then while I was filming, 
I continued to, to work in the branded content space. So it was not easy. It was not easy, but all I knew along the way was that I had something. I believed very strongly that I had something and I knew that I needed to finish because this was going to be something that represented who I am as a filmmaker, representing the voice that I have to contribute and kind of just believing that this is what I've been called to do. And I just went with it, you know, and it's, it's been, I will not, I will not lie. It has been very scary. It's been very challenging because it's an uncomfortable place to just follow your dreams and uh, see where it goes. <laughs> and I'm lucky that, you know, because I worked in that corporate space for so long, I had a little savings in the bank and I was able to explore this career transition, if you will. And I put everything into it. And here I am feeling very proud of what I created, but I'm still trying to figure out the, the path, right? So I love telling stories. I love, you know, amplifying women's voices. I feel like an outlier as I walk through life as a queer person. Those are the kind of stories I like. I like to bring those kind of off, off the, the grid stories to the mainstream so that people can think about life differently, if you will. So, so I'm, I'm kind of like just kind of going with the flow and now uh, very grateful that the film was picked up and the film is having such success on stars and on these streaming platforms. And I'm um, honestly just gonna continue to believe that this path you know, will evolve successfully. It's a great story. I love that. And am I correct in that Lady Buds is going to become a series now? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Let's talk about the pandemic, right? So, so I made this film, it sat on the shelf. What was I going to do for that year? You know, was really focused on developing projects to try to figure out where this was going to go. I was sailing, I was resting. I mean, in a way it was great that the pandemic happened because I ran myself into the ground for three years making this film. Some producers came to a screening. I had a theatrical run in Los Angeles. It was fantastic at the Royal in West LA. And some producers came to one of my screening and they had asked me, you know, have you thought about turning this into a, a scripted feature? And I was like, that is an amazing idea because I always thought of this, you're gonna laugh, as being kind of a superhero film because these women, I was in awe of these women, right? And what they were doing to challenge, you know, this David and Goliath story to challenge these corporations, you know? And so I, I was really taken by that idea and um, we started working together on it. So I'm really excited about that. I'm working with Hellcat and the two producers are Pippa Lambert and Alyssa Norby. And they're fantastic women that really share the vision of, of Ladybuds. We're seeing where that goes. It's very exciting. And then I've always known that, you know, Sue Taylor, who's in the film, is, has always been an inspiration. She lights up a room when she walks into it. Her life has been a tremendous, inspiring journey of overcoming many obstacles as an African-American woman who was born in Louisiana and part of a family of tw with 12 siblings who, who moved themselves across the country to California for a better life. And it only begins there. Like her life is very inspiring. And the fact that she was able to finally open up a dispensary with her family 
to leave a legacy for her family, which she's shared with me many times privately that African-Americans don't often have a chance to leave a legacy for their family, if ever. So that was her mission. That, that show is called Mama Sue. And I'm currently working with some producers who are, are bringing that uh, to market. And that's with Village Roadshow. And I'm very excited about that. That's great. I look forward to seeing all of it. Before you go, can you tell everybody where they can watch Lady Buds? Thank you so much again for having me on. Sure. Lady Buds is currently streaming on Stars, Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, Fandango, Vimeo, YouTube, all of that. Basically, wherever you can watch films being streamed. You can also go to www.ladybudsmovie.com to see where you can see it in person. We're still doing film festivals across California and across the country. And what's really interesting about that is these film festivals, even though we are streaming, they're creating events around the film and panels that bring together part of the business community, the cannabis community and um, women's voices, which is really exciting. On uh, social media, you can go to Instagram, lady.buds. On Facebook, we're at ladybuds. And yeah, we're, I'm currently working with an international sales agent to get Ladybugs out across the world. Right now, we're only in the North America markets, but we're soon going to be able to be seen across the world. Phenomenal. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a real delight to, to talk with another filmmaker. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everybody listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show. Give me five stars, please. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Network. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also email any questions you have to no script no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.